Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Years ago, a friend of mine posted a spoof news bulletin called The The Dangers of Bread, and it listed supposed fictitious dangers. Uh, There was a whole list of them, I'll just read a few, such as more than 98% of convicted criminals are bread eaters. More than 90% of violent crimes are committed within 24 hours of eating bread. Bread is made from a substance called dough. It has been proven that as little as one pound of dough can be used to suffocate a mouse. Finally, most bread eaters are unable to distinguish between scientific fact and meaningless statistical nonsense. Before the day was out, somebody had commented on the post. In all seriousness, they put, I live in Wisconsin. How does this affect me? That's the question. So often we ask, when things go wrong, when we're looking at the news, when we're reading about statistics and restrictions, facts and figures, jabs and jobs, we're thinking, what about me? Here this week in Didsbury, when I first started to hear about the floods that was possible, um, yeah, I thought, what's going to happen to me? Are we going to be all right? And I thought, well, we've got a canoe in the cellar. And then I thought, but we haven't got any sandbags. And, and it's like, how does this affect me. And today we're going to look at what was going on in the city that Jonah was sent to in the Bible and how it affected him. I initially planned to finish Jonah today and to start into something else, but I'm loving it so much I decided to split the last chapter in two and we're going to look at the second half next week when we take up what we call our Ivy First Fruits offering. We take that up, if you're not aware, at the start of every year. We use it to bless people or to start projects that we couldn't possibly have planned for or to break new ground in some way. And we never kind of publicise a figure on it and say, this is what we're aiming at. All we do is pray and then we believe that people will be generous first year we did it years ago we did 15,000 pounds was what came in I think or that was the aim I think we got 20 and we were blown away because we'd never had that amount in in a single offering before I don't think I mean it was so wonderful and we just gave it all away and then over the years it's gone up and up and up and up and we've given sometimes we've just given the whole lot away sometimes we've used it for some projects that have helped or part of it has helped us to be able to do some things it's, it's generally often gets to about 150,000 pounds each year and we've been able to start some fantastic projects like like CAP, the ministry there, and like WTC, like this stage that I'm standing on, this was all came out of WT, out of um, out of First Fruits, and so much that's been going on at Cheadle Hume has been helped by First Fruits giving too. Before Christmas, rather than just land it on people, we talk about how to honour God. I, I did a series, you remember, about how we can honour God with our finances, and perhaps you want to review some of that. It's all on the website. We encourage people then to rein it in at Christmas, so you can give it in in the new year and and last week you know we talked about how we can give and how we can how we can say Lord and how the difference it makes in our lives when we actually mean it when we say Lord I'm giving myself to you you're in charge I'm going to trust you I'm going to put you first in everything in my life because you are the Lord and of course that has to include our finances we don't give to get but it's amazing how how often how many times we end up hearing miracle stories coming back when people have given in that extravagant way because it really is true that you can't outgive god 
And I know that other people, some people watching now will hear about this and maybe think, oh, that sounds like a good idea, but you won't get involved, you won't do it. Some people will, some people won't. That's always the case. Some people, whatever God is doing, there'll be some people who are participants and some people who remain observers. I wonder which one you're going to be. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to speak his message to the people there. But nationalistic pride and racism stopped him and he decided instead, I know best, I'm going to go where I want to go. And he went the other way. In his mercy, we've seen how God sent a storm and then a fish to kind of stop him and turn him around. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We looked at that last week. And then this time Jonah did set off and did what God told him and he preached that short message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's good. Jonah thinks, great, they're going to get what they deserve. They're going to get fire and brimstone and hell and damnation in Nineveh. But as we just saw in that video, and as we looked at last week in Hebrew, that word overturned also means turned around. And that's exactly what happened because the people there stopped doing what they didn't what God didn't want them to do and they started to do what he wanted them to do and and then it says at the end of chapter three God saw what they did that they'd stopped doing what was evil so he had mercy on them and he didn't destroy them our God's a God of mercy let's carry on I'm just going to read from message the message version in chapter four verses one and two says this Jonah was furious he lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was what was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew that you were sheer grace and mercy. Not easily angered, rich in love and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a programme of forgiveness. See, when he thinks the Ninevites are not going to get what he thinks they so richly deserve, he just throws all his toys out the pram. They can't get away with it that easily. Surely God's going to punish them anyway. It literally reads, he thought God had evilly done a great evil. In doing what? Forgiving them. Conveniently forgetting that God had just given him a number of second chances. You know, if you heard this phrase, garbage in, garbage out out you're probably going to say no it's not true it's not garbage in garbage stays garbage stinks and it spoils and what's in your mind starts to show up in your heart and it does start to come out in your mouth and in your life and in your attitude and your behavior and I wonder what message is your life preaching see Jonah was meant to be a prophet of God but look at the message his life was preaching Never mind the words that came out of his mouth. Jonah now, he just wanted these people to get what he thought they deserved. No mercy. They deserve death for their disobedience. But what can he do? He's going to pull his face. That's the only thing that he can do. Jonah the moaner. That's who he is. Jonah the moaner. I remember hearing Carl Beach say, this is one of the major things he's seen that stops Christians being used by God. And then he said, especially the men. After all of his work, all of his years leading Christian Vision for Men, he says, men, and most Christian men, he said, are terrible sulkers. Never forget hearing it because I thought, hmm, okay, maybe I'm getting nailed on that one. Jonah the moaner. Jonah the groaner. Verse three, he says, God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. Now, he doesn't mean it. 
He's been a drama queen. He's attention-seeking. He's like, oh, poor me, pity me. It's not fair. My life is ruined. It's like emotional blackmail. He's just wallowing in self-pity, and he's trying to attract sympathy for himself. So what does the God of mercy, the God of love, say to him in reply? It says this. God says, what do you have to be angry about? What do you have to be angry about? They say misery attracts company, but it's not true. See, people might say, oh, that's awful. But your most negative friends will enjoy joining in with your moan a little bit, just so they can tell you what they're fed up about too. But they don't really care. They don't really care about you because they only care about them. Look at your close relationships and ask What are this group doing to me? Is it nourishing? Is it toxic? How do you know? Look at the fruit. Look what it's doing to you. See, isn't it interesting? If you go for a walk with somebody, something happens without a word being spoken. Either they adjust to you or you adjust to them. Who are you keeping step with? See, nobody wants to hang around a moaner and a groaner very long. Even God is a bit fed up with him. Maybe you've seen that old poster or tea towel, footprints in the sand. Lots of people love that, you know, the, the, the sentiment of, of, of the Lord walking with us and the man walking along the beach. But there's a funny version of another one of these internet classics that says like this. It says, one night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. Then some stranger prints appeared. I asked the Lord, what have we here? These prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired, I got fed up, and there I left you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. Of course, Jonah can't see that. He can't see that he's the problem here. He's too wrapped up in himself. He's too wrapped up in how will this affect me? That's his only question because actually that's all he really cares about. The words I, me and my occur nine times in the Hebrew, in verses two to three. He just moans and he groans and God is like, grow up, grow up. I read a writer this week called Anthony DeMello and he said most people don't actually want to come out of kindergarten. They just want their broken toys fixed. And yes, God is a father. He's a loving father. And he knows not to spoil his sulky kids. He will not indulge our selfishness, get into our nonsense or get involved in our dramas. So he asks, what do you actually have to be angry about? And isn't that a great question? Next time we start flipping out, if life's not going the way I want and and I'm thinking, oh, what about me? What about my? What about I, I, I? What do I have to be angry about? Some of you 
Some of you watching will have a really good reason to feel frustrated, even to feel angry, even angry with God. Do you know what you can do with that? Take it to him. He's big enough. He'll, he'll, he'll help you. He'll give you answers. And it's healthy to be able to do that. But Jonah doesn't do that. He can't even reply to God. Verse 5 says this, Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in a sulk. He put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Jonah the moaner, Jonah the groaner, Jonah the loner. That's a big part of his problem and it's a really big problem because now this is becoming part of his personality. Does not play well with others. Cuts himself off, isolates, takes his ball home. This is... Maybe when he was a kid, this was the way in which he got his own way. Manipulating other people, having a hissy fit, thinking it'll work with God. So he's going to sit there, grumping, moaning, fuming. It's not fair. That's how this affects him. What's he looking at? He's looking at a whole city of people in need. He's looking at... Hundreds of thousands of people who are now desperately hungry for God and wanting somebody to come and help them. So what, Jonah says. I'm not going. I don't want anything to do with that. I've got enough problems. Jonah, the loner. Arms folded, bottom lip out, complaining, criticising and condemning. Hoping for the worst. What a terrible way to waste your life, to be an observer and not to be a participant. I've got a friend called Dr. Paul McGee. He's, he's, uh, if you go in WH Smith, you're going to see his books all over the place. He's a best-selling self-development business coach and guru and writer, known as the sumo guy. He's also a Christian. And the first principle that he writes about says, imagine, what, imagine if what you thought about life and about yourself was encapsulated in a word or even a short phrase written on a T-shirt as you walked around so everybody could see it every day. He says, what message would you have on the T-shirt? And some people, he says, walk through life with this message on their T-shirt. Just one word, victim, victim. Now I know there are genuine victims in the world. I saw that when I joined the police early on. There are some people, very bad things can happen to people. But sometimes we can play the victim. We can, all kinds of reasons we can become a bit of a martyr. We become negative or passive or, or aggressive even. So we don't have to take any responsibility for our own lives. Like it helps to blame others. It, 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 you know, rather than look at how I can respond. And actually I can always choose my response. Whatever situation. Even if there's things that are going on outside of my control. Doesn't mean that I can't control what's going on on the inside of me. And Paul Paul says this, he says, you can change your t-shirt, you really can. You can always make that choice of what you're putting out to the world and what's going on inside of you. Design a new one. He gets kids to do it in schools. He gets he even gets people leading businesses and organisations to do it too. Put something different, put something positive up as a sign. And, the, and when you do that, he says, an opportunity will come that wasn't there before. Or it will help you to see one that was there all the time. And imagine you know, having all these kids in schools who just end up changing and not seeing themselves as just a victim. Now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens, I never ever want to wear the victim T-shirt. This does not fit. 
it doesn't fit me. It's not what I want to wear. And actually, I don't have to wear that anymore. There's no way I want to do that. Instead, I want to wear this one. This says, victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the T-shirt I want to wear in every situation. I don't want to just sit passively and watch what's going on in the world and, and watch and wonder what might God do to be able to fix it. I want to play my part. I want to do something. I want to join God in what he's doing. Whether, and I just want to do my bit, whether it's large or small, in God's great rescue mission in the world that's going on right now. The things that he saved me to do. Anybody else? If that's you too, then put something on the chat or something that says, yeah, Lord, I want to be, I want to be a victor in you. But I don't want to be a victim. And God will hear that. See, you're never, you're never going to make a difference when you're wearing a victim T-shirt. Never going to happen. So do you need to change your T-shirt today? The size of the problems, the speed of the change and the information can have us feeling beat before we even got started. Thinking, well, how will this affect me? Waiting to see what God's going to do. Wondering. Well, at the same time, God's wondering, what am I going to do? Because Jesus' followers are never meant to live that little I, me, what about me, how is this affecting me life? We're never meant to be just passive observers of what's going on and the problems in the world. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a story so hard-hitting, it actually scares me. But it connects really well here with a picture of what a self-focused life can be. And it warns where it leads. Let the story speak to you as if Jesus was telling it to you, as if you're hearing it for the first time. Let him speak, and just as if he was looking you in the eye. He said this, There once was a rich man dressed in fine clothes, feasting every day in happy luxury. Right at the gate of his house, notice that, he's right there, was a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus, that's the poor man's name. It literally means God helps me. And it's a good job he does because nobody else does. He was laid there every day. He can't do anything for himself. Covered with boils, all the neighbourhood dogs would come and lick his open sores. I can never decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe they were like the only creatures who cared for him. Maybe it made him feel a bit better, but it's still a bit gross. So Lazarus, remember, is right there in front of the rich man's gate and he longed to eat the crumbs falling from the rich man's table. That's how hungry he is. And you know what? That's not ancient history back in Israel. This is our world here in Manchester. Over 200,000 children right now in our city are suffering from food poverty. One day, poor Lazarus died. And the angels of God came and escorted his spirit into paradise. And the day came when the rich man also died and was buried. See, the poor die sooner. And they don't even sometimes get a burial. burial. There's no funeral for Lazarus, but heaven is looking after him now. Everybody dies, though, just the same in the end, whether you're rich or poor. But Jesus doesn't say that everybody ends up in the same place. So there's a funeral, nice funeral for the rich man, nice buried. But then it says this, in hell. In hell, he looked up from his torment and saw Abraham in the distance, the father of faith. And Lazarus, the beggar, was standing beside him. Where in glory? He's in heaven. Lazarus is in the non-smoking section. The rich man shouted, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. He wants mercy for him. 
He's thinking, how will this affect me? He still only wants mercy for himself. He's still looking for somebody to look after him, even like Lazarus. So he says, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come and cool my tongue. He still thinks Lazarus should be looking after him, should be his servant. He's beneath him. For I'm in agony in these flames of fire. I know you're thinking, ooh, year of mercy. I wish this wasn't in the Bible too, to be honest with you, but this is Jesus talking and we have to deal with this. Abraham responded, don't you remember while you were alive, you had all you desired while Lazarus had nothing. Now Lazarus is in the comforts of paradise and you're in agony. Besides, between us is a huge chasm that cannot be bridged, keeping anybody from crossing from one realm to the other, even if he wanted to. What's Jesus saying? Too late too late to get close to him now see there will be no needy people in heaven will there there'll be nobody in heaven that needs to know the gospel they'll already know it there'll be nobody in hell it will do them any good to hear it it'll be too late the time to act for God is now in this broken world and it starts when we really let it affect us when we care about what Jesus cares about Where does that start? On our doorstep. Somebody nearby, somebody in need. We're not meant to be separated now from people and their problems. We're meant to be affected by it. We're meant to see and hear and be moved. I don't just mean emotionally moved. That can just lead to pointless sympathy or paralyzing sadness. I mean moved to action. Move means I move. How can I say I'm moved if I never move? If I don't move towards the person, I don't say I'm just moving towards the problem because again, the problems can seem unsolvable, but people are always helpable. Mother Teresa said, it is very fashionable to talk about the poor. Unfortunately, it's not fashionable to talk with them. Man, that convicts me. It makes me want to move. Lazarus, you see, was not a problem to be solved, but a person to be helped and this is not trying to do something for everybody but everybody can do something for someone when Jesus moves you give when Jesus sends you go go to Nineveh he might not send me overseas he might just send me over the street but what I can end up doing if I'm just thinking about how it all affects me I can get so overwhelmed Or I can join Jesus' army of healers and go and have mercy on the next one, as Heidi Baker says. That's how she says, that's how Jesus walked the earth. As you follow him through the Gospels, going, he went from person to person, doing what the Father told him. Have mercy on the next one. Here's a blind man shouting, Lord, have mercy on me. Let's go to him. There's a widow. It's a son that's died. It's a son's funeral. Have mercy on both of them. Here's a rich man. It's hard for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Be merciful to him. Here's Peter getting it wrong again and again. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy on the next one. Wherever Jesus went, he would stop for the one, for the hurting one, for the rejected one, for the, 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 the one in pain. He embodied the message of mercy. And one day a leper comes and kneels at a distance away from Jesus because nobody comes close to a leper. leper. He's shouting out, unclean, unclean. You know, they said that you were cursed. They said you were dirty. They said that you were infectious and contagious. And if you got this, you lost everything and everyone. You just had to self-isolate for life. Perfectly logical to protect the uncontaminated 
The leper, he said, he looked to Jesus, he said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me whole. Notice, you can. He knows Jesus can. He knows Jesus could. He knew Jesus was able. He just wasn't sure if Jesus would be willing. And, and I don't know, but if I'm honest, there's so many, many times when I've been able, but not willing. Jesus said, I am willing and then he did something amazing. And I don't just mean he healed him. Jesus healed people all the time. Everywhere he went, healing happened. Some people even started to realise you don't even have to get him to do a house call. He can just come and do it from where he is. And, and, and when he prays and when he gives a word, sickness goes and healing comes in somebody's house. It's amazing what Jesus did as he healed the leper. But then he says something even more wonderful. It says, being moved with compassion. Greek word there is splank, splanknistis. He stretched out his hand and, and touched him. Touched him. I am willing be clean. Jesus, remember, he didn't have to touch him. He could do like drive-by healings if he wanted. But, but when he looked at him, he operated According to mercy, the logic of mercy, the, the logic of mercy that would make a, 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 a mum run into a burning house to go and get her child. He's got to do something. You see, he looked at this leper and this affected Jesus. He wanted this man and everybody else to know, not just that you're healed, but that you're not dirty. So he touched him and mercy connected. He didn't, he didn't just keep him at a distance. He restored him to community. He was moved to action. Not just emotionally moved, like I said, to pity. Like, oh, this is so awful. Not just moved to empathy, like, oh, I'm trying to imagine how you feel. No, the Greek word splanknistis is another word meaning mercy or compassion. The word is linked to the guts, the bowels. In women, it's linked to a, a woman's womb. Inside, Jesus was affected. He felt this man's pain at a gut level and moved toward it. See, compassion literally means suffer with. Jesus let himself be affected by the man's infection. And listening to a talk years ago, I remember, from never forget a word somebody said on this passage and about this word, Splanknesis, where they said, the reason we don't heal like Jesus is that we don't feel like Jesus. The reason we don't heal like Jesus is that we don't feel like Jesus. But Jesus, you see, stepped in to this world of sin and sickness and poverty and problems, never focusing on himself, focusing on what the Father was doing and on other people. Philippians 2 said he gave it all away for us, emptied himself for us on the cross. And within a short period of time, a group of people who called themselves his followers said he came back to life on the third day. They said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they were terribly persecuted for saying that when everybody else said, Caesar is Lord. But within a few hundred years, the early church went from this small persecuted minority to taking over the world of their time in his name. On our Friday evening prayer meeting just recently, I read from a historian called Rodney Stark how it happened. I haven't got time to read as much now. But if you think we're having it rough, man... He described in horrible detail what the world was like back in Jesus' day and in those first hundred years, few hundred years, what the world was like. He said, they were far more crowded, crime-infested, filthy, disease-ridden and miserable than the worst cities in the world today. If you lived much over 40, you were considered an old person and you were definitely rich. For the pagans and their philosophers, you see, mercy 
quote, was regarded as a character defect, not governed by reason. They said that humans must learn to curb the impulse of mercy. But, quote, in the midst of the squalor, the misery, the illness and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy. He says, it started with Jesus saying, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, if you did it for the least of these, you did it to me. And these people believed that. And Stark says, before long, quote, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state. How? Is it because they were all rich? No, but because everybody got involved. Because they all shared. These, quote, charitable activities were only possible because Christianity generated congregations. A true community of believers who built their lives around what they said they believed. You see, you can only do so much and I can only do so much, but together we can do so much more. I love reading in this week's newsletter, thanks from Terry at Manchester City Mission for the thousands of pounds we just gave all our Christmas offerings away to help their work with the homeless. And just before that, I gave to Barnabas again. And we were also at the same time helping to make the message Christmas shop happen. I couldn't do any of that on my own. But together we can make such a difference. Some of you are serving in those shops as well and doing it face to face. We're moved to action together. Mercy moves us to action together. It got worse in Roman times. It says in the year 165, a devastating epidemic swept through. A quarter to a third of the population died of it. A century later, another great plague came. On all sides, family, friends and neighbours died horribly. Nobody knew how to treat the stricken, nor did most people try. The typical response was to avoid any contact with the afflicted, since it was understood the disease was contagious. Everybody was moved by fear. Everybody was just thinking, how will this affect me? The religion of the time offered no answers. Their indifferent gods held no help at all. Someone in Athens described... Quote, half-dead creatures staggered about in the streets, the temples full of the dead bodies of people who died inside them. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen to them next, became indifferent to every form of religion. But, Stark says, Christians claimed to have answers, and most of all, they took appropriate actions. As for answers, Christians believed that death was not the end, that life was a time of testing, and so they met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. Big question, are you ruled, are we ruled by fear or faith? Are we victims or victorious through Christ. One bishop wrote how most of his people, quote, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours, cheerfully accepting their pains, the best of our brothers lost their lives in this, man, in this manner. See, they died helping other people. They got infected because they were affected. 
They helped each other and the pagans. It shocked the world. Many who did not die, of course, became immune. Adding to the claim, he says that their God was working miracles through them. Meanwhile, the pagan gods offered no escape from mortality. But Christians believed in life everlasting. And because theirs were communities of mercy, Christians had longer and better lives. This was apparent and extremely appealing. Listen, Ivy, anybody watching this, this is how we change the world once. What about if God wants us to take some risks and change the world like this now? Rather than just thinking, how does this affect me? How does this affect me? To think, how does this affect the heart of God? What does God think about what's going on in the world? And who's he calling to step in and do something to help? If we become communities of mercy, if we let ourselves be affected, if we move, moved with compassion, moved toward the need with healing and hope and help in Jesus' name. Final pictures of a friend of mine, Mike McMahon, leads a great church in uh, Warrington, Urban Church. And um, it's just a, it's in a quite a poor area, tough area. And, um, and just after I saw that few, we weren't flooded out. I see that they were all around the area 100 homes flooded very poor area and Mike and his guys have done amazing stuff to be able to take this old scruffy looking out on the outside church hall Church of England thing and they turned it into this vibrant brilliant church and they've spent you know money they didn't really have to put in a cafe and a brilliant staging and all kinds of stuff do everything with excellence and then it, it was he just put on after after months I mean last year he didn't get any pay himself as the pastor of the church because of coronavirus but he just served them just carried on serving anyway because he's not about the money he's not about the career prospect of this and and then he said and he said he just put this Facebook post saying you know to come in and see that the whole place flooded out and under feet of water and our cafe destroyed this is a picture from him he couldn't this is him he could stand and walk to the church in the distance he couldn't drive down to it and all the cars were flooded but then he, he put later just very shortly afterwards he put the same thing but if you're in our community and you need help get in touch and then he started to think how do we help our community how do we help those people in their homes and he was saying the church we can't open up for you at the moment but we want to help we want to help you and I thought wow I'm moved by that and I contacted the elders and said what can we do to help him as he helps them and last year's first fruits we just had a we had some left we had about eight thousand pounds left and we said Let's just clear it out and send it to him. And so we sent £8,000 to be able to help Mike with his work and to, to sort out what he needs to be sorted out so that then he can help other people. Because we can either watch and observe and go, oh, that's awful. But if you gave to First Fruits, listen, last year, you gave to him and you're giving to them. Thank you. Thank you for helping my friend Mike and helping him with the people that they're helping there. It's awesome. And we're a community that's moved by mercy together. Let's pray. As I close with prayer, are you going to observe or going to go all in? Do you want to be fully a part of a community of mercy that looks at need and moves and does something? We can't do everything, but does something to meet it in Jesus' name and power. If so, just tell God I'm all in. I don't want to just stand and watch. I certainly don't want to stand and complain and moan. I don't want to get angry or frustrated from my limited perspective. Lord, thank you for your mercy. 
sorry for the times when I've been a moaner or a groaner or a loner and I want to receive mercy for that now and give it I want to be part of your community of mercy I want to stop being self-obsessed or living for myself so I can be more used by you and move at the impulse of your love to change the world your world Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org/media.